Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are focusing on the law with Dean Erwin Shimerinsky, one of the country's most influential lawyers, legal scholars, and legal educators. Truly, I do not say that lightly. Dean Shimerinsky is one of the nation's top legal thinkers. We are so grateful for his time. Erwin is dean at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. He was previously the founding dean at the University of California Irvine School of Law. He's the author of a dozen books, over 200 law review articles. Erwin Shimerinsky, thank you for joining us. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for the incredibly sweet introduction. It's really my great pleasure. It's really all accurate. And before we dive into your area of expertise, this is something I've always wanted to ask you, which is, I know you also have a background in political science. How did you decide to go into the law? How did you decide to pursue this career? If you would have known me at any time in college, I would have told you I wanted to be a high school teacher. And I took all of the courses to be a certified high school teacher. I did my student teaching at Highland Park High School, Illinois, and became a certified high school social studies teacher in Illinois. And at basically the last possible minute to take the LSAT, my senior year of college, to go to law school the following fall, I did so. And I did so because I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. I was so inspired to go to law school by the men and women in the 1950s and the 1960s who really changed the world through the law. And I went to law school because I wanted to be a public interest lawyer and do constitutional law. Now, you certainly have fulfill that you are, as I said, one of the nation's experts, I would say the nation's expert on constitutional law. And I saw that just a few days ago, you gave a speech called How Can the Constitution Save Us? How can we develop a progressive view of the Constitution? You've written a lot on this. I want to recommend the listeners uh, to a few of your books, We the People, A Progressive Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century, and Interpreting the Constitution from 87. And so, now that I've said you've written in detail about this, I'm going to ask you an unfair question, which is, how can we develop a progressive view of the Constitution? Unfortunately, I think it's not going to be through the United States Supreme Court for the foreseeable future. The reality is, even before September 18th, this was a very conservative court. And with Amy Coney Barrett almost surely to be confirmed, it's going to become an even more conservative court. So what is it we're going to need to do? We're going to need to turn more to state courts and state constitutions. We need to turn more to the political process. And we need to turn more to developing a long-term strategy. Conservatives to the Federalist Society 40 years ago came up with a plan for what their vision of the Constitution would be and how to take over the judiciary. They've now succeeded. Progressives need to do the same thing and plan for decades ahead where we want to be. Yeah, that is sobering, but I think very much based in reality. And you've written a lot about the Supreme Court. I'll name a few of the books, Closing the Courthouse Door, How the Supreme Court Has Made Your Rights Unenforceable, The Case Against the Supreme Court, The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. I know that the Supreme Court will soon be changing, and I want to ask you about this, but could you list for the listeners, a few of the ways that you would advocate that we reform the Supreme Court? I would start with term limits. 
I would like to see 18-year non-renewable terms for Supreme Court justices. Thankfully, life expectancy is a lot longer now than it was when the Constitution was written in 1787. Then the average life expectancy was 36 years old. Clarence Thomas was 43 when he was confirmed for Supreme Court in 1991. If he stays on the court until he's 90 years old, the age was just as Stevens retired, he will be a justice for 47 years. Or take Amy Coney Barrett. She's 48 years old. If she remains on the court until she's 87, the age was just a Ginsburg castaway, she will be a Supreme Court justice into the year 2059. That's too much power in one person's hands for too long a period of time. Also, too much depends on the accident of history. Richard Nixon had four vacancies in two years as president. Jimmy Carter had none in his four years as president. Barack Obama had two vacancies to fill in eight years. Donald Trump has had three in less than four. A statistic that I find particularly startling, since 1960, there have been 32 years with Republican presidents and 28 years with Democratic presidents. Almost even. But Republican presidents have got to pick 15 Supreme Court justices. Democratic presidents have gotten to pick only seven Supreme Court justices just because of the accident of timing when vacancies occur. 18-year non-renewable terms would mean a vacancy every two years. Every president with the same ability to shape the Constitution. You, I just think it makes all the sense in the world. As you said, it's such an accident of history. And look at President Trump, who might get three nominations. And you mentioned Judge Amy Coney Barrett. I wanted to turn to her quickly and say, of course, she might be the newest member of the Supreme Court. We don't know. The hearings are scheduled to begin soon. We don't know exactly if they will begin as scheduled. But can you remind the listeners, why is it so important for Republicans that these confirmation hearings happen before the election, particularly, I'll just remind everybody, against the backdrop of February 2016, Justice Antonin Scalia passes away. The leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, says no hearings in election year. September 14th, 2020, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. Within, what, 55 minutes, Senator Mitch McConnell says, we're going to fill the seat. Can you remind people what's at stake? Why are Republicans rushing this? This is likely the fifth vote that conservatives need and want to overrule Roe versus Wade. If you had talked to me before Justice Ginsburg's death, I would have said there's four justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, who are ready, willing, eager to overrule Roe versus Wade. I thought that Chief Justice Roberts would uphold a lot of restrictions on abortion, but I didn't think he would vote to overrule Roe. I have no doubt whatsoever Amy Coney Barrett will be the fifth vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. That's why conservatives want Amy Coney Barrett on the court, and they want to make sure she gets confirmed by the end of the Trump presidency. There's certainly other issues as well. I worry that Amy Coney Barrett could be a fifth vote to overturn the constitutional protection for marriage equality for gays and lesbians. If nothing else, I think she's going to be a fifth vote to allow discrimination against gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals, perhaps by employers who have religious objections to employing such individuals, perhaps in other contexts like businesses that don't want to serve 
gay and lesbian couples. Again, this is important to conservatives, and they know Amy Coney Barrett is on their side. Yeah, you just mentioned, you know, this issue of religious, what I view from a 30,000-foot view as this clash that we're going to see over and over again, seemingly between religious views, religious freedoms, and freedom from discrimination. And I wanted to pivot to a few of the big cases that uh, the Supreme Court is going to hear this term, potentially with uh, then-future Justice Barrett on the court. And the first one I think it's um, going to be heard the day after the election, deals with this matchup between religious rights and freedom from discrimination. Again, I want to recommend a new book that you have, The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State. Could you remind people what this case dealing with foster care and same-sex couples is about, what the legal issues are? Of course. The case is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, and it will be argued on Wednesday, November the 4th. What's involved is that Philadelphia contracts with private social service agencies to place children in foster care. In order for a private social service agency to do this in Philadelphia, it has to agree it won't discriminate on the basis of race or sex or religion or sexual orientation. Catholic Social Services says it will not agree to that, because it wants, based on its religious beliefs, to not place children with gay or lesbian couples. Philadelphia wouldn't contract with them on that basis, so Catholic Social Services filed a lawsuit in saying, you're infringing our free exercise of religion and our freedom of speech by not allowing us to participate in the program, but still not have to place children with gay and lesbian couples. And the Supreme Court has granted review. Jessica, I think the key here is, There's always a tension between liberty and equality. Anytime we stop people from discriminating, we're limiting their freedom to discriminate. And yet our society has made the choice for over a half century that it's more important to stop discrimination than to protect freedom's right to discriminate. And I fear what the Supreme Court's going to say here is that the freedom to discriminate based on religious beliefs is more important than equality and protecting gays and lesbians from discrimination. I want to stay with this theme of protecting gays and lesbians from discrimination and something you brought up just a few moments ago, which is, um, you know, where are the areas where we could see the most immediate impact with a Justice Barrett? And you mentioned gay marriage. You have a recent op-ed in the LA Times. I don't want you to feel like I stalk everything that you write, but in fact, I do. And it's entitled The Latest Threat to Same-Sex Marriage, Clarence Thomas. Now, I think a lot of people feel like we had this landmark decision. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote an opinion, and he said the right to marriage is a fundamental right and that everybody has the right to marry. I think that's kind of the headline takeaway. Can you tell us a little bit about what you wrote in the op-ed and what the recent development was that led you to write the piece? On Monday, October 5th, the Supreme Court denied review in a case involving Kim Davis. And people might remember that Kim Davis was a clerk in Kentucky who refused to issue marriage certificates to same-sex couples. She said it violated her free exercise of religion. The lower federal courts, the Federal District Court and Federal Court of Appeals, ruled against Kim Davis. 
they basically said a gay couple or a lesbian couple can't be denied a marriage license because you don't want to issue it. That's your job as a government official. You don't want this job. You don't have to have it. But you don't have a constitutional right to say that gay and lesbian couples won't be able to marry. The United States Supreme Court denied a review in Kim Davis's case. It should have been an easy one. But what was very troubling to me is Justice Thomas wrote an opinion respecting the denial of review, joined by Justice Alito, in which he lambasted the Supreme Court's decision in 2015 in Oberfeld v. Hodges that said that gays and lesbians have the right to marry. He could not have been stronger in his criticism of it, and he said, this is an infringement of religious freedom. People of religious objection to same-sex weddings should be able to exercise that. When I read Justice Thomas' opinion, I got worried. Like you, I had thought the issue of same-sex marriage was resolved. It's now part of our culture. 300,000 same-sex couples have gotten married since 2015. But remember, not only did Thomas and Alito dissent in that case, but Chief Justice Roberts dissented. The only dissent John Roberts has read from the bench since he came on the court in 2005 was an Oberfeld. Also, Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion, it was a dissent in 2017, where he left no doubt that he disagreed with a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And then we get to Amy Coney Barrett, and she was very critical of the court's decision with regard to same-sex marriage. And based on everything she said about herself, that Justice Scalia's philosophy is her philosophy, does that then add up to five votes to overrule Obergefell? But even if there's not five votes to do that, I think there are five votes to allow bakers and florists and stationery stores and photographers to discriminate against gays and lesbians. And I fear there's going to be five votes to allow Catholic social services to discriminate against gay and lesbian couples. Yeah, it does seem like that's one where the action is and that's where the law is going. And I do want to ask you about two other big cases before the court this term. But in talking about gay marriage and the fact that I think a lot of people think, okay, that's settled, the Supreme Court made that decision. But as you explained, it, it may not be the case or the rights of the LGBTQ community might really be kind of whittled down or not protected as much as maybe you or I would hope on the federal level. It brings me to a separate question, which is, are... Republicans just better than Democrats about explaining the stakes of who is a federal judge and who is a member of the Supreme Court to their voters? Because it seems to me that Republicans are very efficient and organized about explaining to voters, this is why it matters. You might not love this candidate. And in fact, I think this is why we've seen a lot of the Republican establishment stay with President Trump, which is... You might not like him, you might not like what he says or the way he says it, but look at the federal judiciary and soon look at the Supreme Court. Have Democrats kind of missed a boat in not explaining this as well, or do they explain it, but maybe Democratic voters aren't as motivated, or am I misperceiving what's going on here? You're clearly perceiving it correctly, but I'm not sure I can explain why. Republicans have cared much more about judges than Democrats have. In the CNN exit polls in 2016, the number one reason that Trump voters gave for casting their ballot 
was the Supreme Court. For Democratic voters, the Supreme Court was number four on the reasons why they voted for Hillary Clinton. Or to put it another way, 54% of Trump voters said the primary reason they voted for him was federal judges. That manifests itself in other ways as well. Republican presidents have been much more aggressive in filling vacancies on the courts than Democratic presidents have been. Republican presidents have picked much further to the right than Democratic presidents have picked from the left, all of which goes to how much the base cares. If I had to come up with an explanation, I would point to abortion. Abortion has been so much the driving issue for conservatives. And I think they've really pushed, at least with regard to Supreme Court nominations, for presidents to pick justices who will vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. What I'm going to say next is sensitive, but it's the facts. When Amy Coney Barrett goes on the Supreme Court, and I think she will, we will be at a time of seven Catholic justices and two Jewish justices. Neil Gorsuch was raised Catholic and is now Episcopalian. Of course, no one's religion should ever be a basis for selecting them or for opposing them. But you wonder, how did that come to be? Well, I think it's because Republican presidents have wanted to assure the conservative base they're picking people who are going to be anti-abortion. And I think by picking people as they have, they've transmitted that message. Yeah, it does, as always, seem to come back to abortion. So if you talk to people who are not lawyers or maybe not you know, followers of the Supreme Court, if there's one issue that it seems to me that people know about, it is abortion. And this brings me in kind of a roundabout way to a question I've been asked a couple of times, and I'm not sure that you would agree with me, but people are saying if perhaps future Justice Barrett does become a member of the Supreme Court, that she should recuse herself from any election-related litigation. And my feeling is that she shouldn't, because at that point, we all are saying, we just don't trust you. And I know that it's, we just don't trust you to be a judge. And I know it's different, because it's really, the idea is it's President Trump saying, Judge Barrett, here's your job. Now in a few weeks, you ensure that I have my job. But it also seems to me that she might care a lot more about Roe v. Wade than she does about the election. And we shouldn't get into this habit of saying to future justices, you're not allowed to weigh in on issues that might affect the president who nominated you. Now, I know that this is an extraordinary circumstance, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this idea that she should recuse from any election-related litigation. I don't believe that justices have to recuse themselves because they've taken a position on an issue. Clarence Thomas has taken a position that Roe v. Wade should be overruled. He said so on many occasions in his judicial opinions, but that doesn't mean he has to recuse himself. We know that Sonia Sotomayor is going to vote to reaffirm Roe versus Wade, but that doesn't mean she has to recuse herself, nor do Amy Coney Barrett's statements before going onto the bench cause her to recuse herself. I think with regard to the election, it's about something different. There is the idea in judicial ethics that judges have to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. Mm-hmm. If Amy Coney Barrett were to go on to the Supreme Court November 3rd, it would have cast the deciding ballot, the uh, deciding vote on the Supreme Court to make Donald Trump the president. It sure is to me the appearance of impropriety that she was put on the Supreme Court so quickly so as to keep Donald Trump in power. 
So to me, that's what makes it different than just she cares a lot about the issue or has spoken about the issue. Yeah, you're right. And as we know in politics and the law, appearances matter, particularly when it comes to the integrity of the court. And, you know, of course, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army behind it. There's no military behind it. It only has as much power as we give it if we say we're going to respect that opinion. Erwin, I'd also like to talk to you about two of the other big cases that we already know the Supreme Court is going to hear. Um, one of them deals with the Affordable Care Act. I think, is this the third time now that the Affordable Care Act is, has arrived at the front steps of the Supreme Court in some iteration? And this case, it's going to be heard about a week after the election, and it deals in part with the individual mandate and the fact that Congress zeroed out the penalty for the individual mandate, but it was upheld as a tax. And then second, it deals with this idea of if the individual mandate is not constitutional, um, is the rest of the Affordable Care Act, can it stand without that individual mandate? So that's broad brush. Could you give the listeners a little bit more detail or perhaps even correct me? Of course. No, everything you said is completely correct. The case is California versus Texas. In 2012, the Supreme Court first considered the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And the specific issue there was the constitutionality of what you just referred to is the individual mandate. This was the requirement that everyone either purchase health insurance or pay a tax penalty. And the court five to four said that this was constitutional because Congress was using its taxing power. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, drawn by Ginsburg, Breyerson, and Kagan. In December 2017, as part of the tax reform bill, Congress eliminated the penalty for people not purchasing insurance. Texas then brought a lawsuit and said, the individual mandate was constitutional as an excise of the taxing power. No longer is it a tax, so that means it has to be unconstitutional. And the individual mandate was thought of as the linchpin for the Affordable Care Act. Therefore, the whole act is unconstitutional. Now, I think that this argument is flawed on so many levels. Even assume for a moment that this makes the individual mandate unconstitutional. The question whenever a part of a law is declared unconstitutional is, does that make the whole law unconstitutional? And that's a question of congressional intent. Would Congress have passed the rest of the Affordable Care Act without this provision? Well, the answer to that is clear here. Congress just repealed the penalty for the individual mandate. It didn't change the rest of the law. In fact, you might remember, in December 2017, Congress voted on whether to repeal the entire Affordable Care Act, and it didn't. John McCain, who was very ill, came into the Senate to cast the deciding vote to save the Affordable Care Act. So we know that Congress wanted the rest of the Affordable Care Act, even if it changed this one provision. So it should be an easy constitutional question. But everything about the Affordable Care Act has been so partisan. Every Republican in Congress voted against it. There were four votes against it in 2012 on the Supreme Court. And after that decision, then law professor Amy Coney Barrett was a very critical of the Supreme Court's decision very critical of Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion. 
you said, you know, everything is so polarized and partisan. Is the Supreme Court more polarized and partisan than it has been in past history? Or does it just feel like it because of what happened with respect to the nomination of Merrick Garland and what's happening with respect to the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett? And if I could ask a compound question, does a liberal judicial philosophy often map onto a Democratic political win? And same question for Republicans, does a conservative judicial philosophy often map onto a Republican political win? Our society is much more politically polarized than it's been probably at any time since Reconstruction. There used to be moderate or even liberal Republicans. We can think of the idea of Rockefeller Republicans or Jacob Javits, who are Republicans, um, Edward Brooke, a senator from Massachusetts, a liberal Republican. There are no liberal, and there aren't really very many moderate Republicans anymore either. Look at the United States Senate. At the same time, there used to be conservative Democrats, the Southern Democrats. Well, we no longer have those kinds of conservative Democrats anymore. So the political parties have become much more ideologically polarized. Not surprisingly, the justices reflect the ideology of their parties. And we have something now we've never seen in American history. All of the justices ideologically correspond to the political party of the president who appointed them. All five conservative justices on the court were appointed by Republican presidents. All four liberal justices were appointed by Democratic presidents. Until recently, we had, say, John Paul Stevens and David Souter who were appointed by Republican presidents, but voted with the liberals. Or before that, we had Byron White and Felix Frankfurter, Democratic appointees who voted with the conservatives. But all of this heightens the sense of a court that's very ideologically divided. It is. Erwin, I can't tell you how desperately I would like to make this the first 30 minutes of an hour-long conversation, but I want you to come back, so I'm not going to do that. We've learned so much from you. As loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know, now I'd like to ask a little bit more about you. I ask all my guests the same three questions. And question number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I'm going to cheat on the question, which I know you should never do with a law professor. <laughs> I would invite my father. My dad died 27 years ago. And if I could have one wish, it would be get to have one more dinner with him. You know, I was actually just thinking about this question before we taped. And I have to admit that I was thinking, what if somebody asked me? And whenever I ask a guest this question, I always just want to say my grandparents. Um, so I, it, please cheat away on that one. Question number two. You are going to be stranded on a desert island and you can pick one meal. What is it? <laughs> um, oh, I don't know that I have any favorite food. Actually, this is going to sound strange. If I had to, it would be, you know, perfect fresh fruit, the ideal peach, the ideal cantaloupe, something like that. Um, but, um, oh, I also love chocolate, so I can't leave that out. <laughs> a farmer's market feast with some candy. Uh, last question. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it? Oh, that's a great question. 
I guess to, it seems strange now in COVID, but the idea of being able to teleport, the idea of being able to travel without um, needing to get on airplanes. I'm going to say it seems strange now since I haven't been on a plane since March, but given how much time we all spend traveling, being able to travel automatically, that would be really wonderful. Well, I understand because for very good reason, you are in high demand. You can find out more about Berkeley Law School on Twitter at Berkeley Law, all one word, B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y Law. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you so much to all the listeners for listening, subscribing, and sharing. Erwin, truly, this has been a highlight for me. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. My enormous pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. We thank everyone very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.